you've got your notes, uh, you should have notes that say Song of Solomon on it. Um, we, uh, if you remember, we skipped over Ecclesiastes. You go, why is that? Because we dealt with that in a what we called a kind of crossover event where we took the notes for Ecclesiastes introduction from our Old Testament message uh, series here and uh, took them and used it um, in that time frame. So we are in the last of the wisdom books. There's five of them. They start with Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and then Song of Solomon. Out of all the books uh, in the wisdom books, uh, they all have their own certain kind of difficulties and their own certain kind of blessings. In Job, uh, you look at it and you kind of go through it and you're dealing with the issue of why people suffer, which that really doesn't ever get answered in Job's mind why he's suffering. Uh, But it's a defense of God. You finally see at the end uh, that why are we questioning God? Because he is uh, good and he is uh, the creator and that uh, we sometimes say things that we should not. And Job was an example of that also along with his friends. And so you get a a defense of God uh, in the book of Job. Go to Psalms, uh, and uh, you have uh, the songbook of the nation of Israel, and it has everything from laments uh, to praises, and it's lamenting uh, early on in the Psalms more so than at the end, where you get a whole bunch of praise going on for what God has done, but it's kind of a songbook for the nation of Israel, or something to pray on a regular basis. The book of Proverbs is one uh, where uh, you can get lengthy statements in the first nine chapters of it uh, that give you understanding of what wisdom's like, how it acts in real life, and and these type of things, and then the very short, pithy statements uh, that uh, are used uh, to chew on, uh, starting in chapter 10 and verse 1, right on through the end of the book, where you have one verse where you can get a lot out of it if you just chew on it for a little bit. You had Ecclesiastes, which is a book that is written at the end of Solomon's life where he is basically giving a whole argument of what is the value of life. And really that is what he's doing, is giving a defense of this, but it really is kind of pessimistic at times, uh, seemingly so as you read some of the statements, but it's not uh, that he's being a pessimist. He's just saying, you live life without God you're going to be frustrated. You live life as if God does exist. He's got a part of it, and uh, he plays a role in it, and life will be somewhat satisfying on a daily basis if you just do that uh, over and over again. So you have that. And then you have this book, Song of Solomon. And uh, as you go through it, uh, it is by far one of the more controversial books. There are even people that, uh, in some occasions, have said simply that this book should not be a part of the canon. And there are multiple reasons why you find it difficult, and we'll go through that as we go along. But uh, out of all the books, uh, this one is the most controversial, though at times it's very in a sense, easy to read. It's just that it is controversial for even the subject matter that is covered in it. So let's just kind of go through this book and and get what we can out of it and uh, help you understand it as you uh, read through it on your own. This is a book written by Solomon, and you say, uh, how do you know that? Well, it says the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. 
Okay, so that pretty much uh, puts it down that this is something that Solomon, and I, I'm going to say that Solomon probably organized. Okay, I'm not going to say that he wrote every section of it. I think he organized this, and I'm going to tell you why I, I think that's the case as we go along. But uh, <clears throat> you say, when was it written? Uh, seemingly most people think that because it's talking about marriage and the like, uh, perhaps uh, Solomon is uh, collecting this as he's getting married to the first of his wives. I don't think a lot of this material would have been when he yeah, had multiple wives and he would have been collecting this material at that point uh, somehow. Uh, but uh, I would suggest that it's at the beginning of Solomon's reign uh, that it is there. And <clears throat> you say, what's the theme of Solomon? The Song of Solomon is just simply this, marital love. Love between a husband and a wife, or before that, an engaged couple. Uh, you have this love that's there. That ought to be a part of life uh, if you're married, uh, up until the day you die. Okay, It's not that this is just merely a book for, for people who are about to get married or newlyweds or that type of thing. This is a book that is designed uh, for an individuals and individuals involved in the relationship of marriage to read again and again, understand what real love is like. You say, well, is this a good subject uh, to talk about? Well, understand, this is what God from the beginning in Genesis chapter 2, said was good. It was not good. I mean, the first statement was, it's not good. And you say, what was that? It was not good for man to be alone. <clears throat> and so when you have this whole relationship of a, a husband and a wife that is settled, God says this is good. And so you figure that the founder of this would have things to say about what married life is supposed to be like. And I would say as you read through this, and, and we'll talk about why sometimes it's difficult to read through this book, but it seems to have at least a pattern of uh, different things going on that relate to three different parts of a wedding relationship. Okay, There seems to be an element in the first part of this that there's a courtship going on. Uh, wedding plans, concerns about whether or not uh, they are going to have the wedding, and the, the, the girl is you know, concerned about the fact of whether, whether she's really worthy of being married. I mean, you have statements like, uh, and it's one of those uh, statements where it's talking about, uh, in verse 6, look not upon me because I am black. You say, what's that? She's tanned. And what that means is this, she has to work out in the fields. And so she's kind of concerned in the sense that she's going, am I really sufficient to be somebody's wife if I've been working out in the fields? Am I really, you know, marriageable material? I mean, that's what she's asking there. And you read through it, and she's just kind of going, I I'm not really sure. And then there are, are conversations where she's, you know, consoled by the fact that, yes, you're, you're worthy of marriage and, and her uh, boyfriend or her fiancé, as you may uh, describe him, uh, gives her some encouragement. You have the consummation, the marriage itself, as you go through this, uh, the whole uh, aspect of the wedding feast and different aspects uh, of this uh, wedding feast that takes place. 
uh, that's a part of that. And for us, it's a little bit different. Jewish culture realized this, that you had uh, the different aspects of this. It's not like everybody comes here uh, for a wedding and the wedding takes place here. No, when you have a wedding, you have this traveling of parties to one location to pick up the bride, to then bring them to the bride's house and then, or the the groom's house. And then uh, you have this big feast that takes place. And in Jewish culture, sometimes these feasts went on for seven days. And uh, so you have uh, this wedding feast that's uh, described uh, in different ways and different details. And you see this in chapter 3, verses uh, 3, 6 through 5, 1. And then this, uh, the realities of marriage. You know, you might, might say this, the honeymoon's over. That's not to say that they don't love each other anymore, but there are certain conflicts and fears uh, that go on in the marriage relationship as you read through those passages and the poems that are there. There's this concern of uh, fear and loss and, and wondering that even go on when uh, individuals are married. And so you have all three aspects of this uh, kind of uh, poems and what we'll talk about a little bit more, the arrangement that is here that makes it a little bit more confusing. Key phrases, this will help you identify what's going on because sometimes it's hard to figure out if the husband or the wife or the boy or the girl is the one that's speaking. Okay, if you see this statement, my beloved, it's the woman talking. Okay, so if you see that, then you're kind of going, okay, it's, you know, you have times where it seems like, okay, is this the the guy speaking or the girl speaking? What's the conversation here? If you see that statement, it is the woman that's speaking. If you see this statement, it's the shepherd or the husband or the boyfriend, however you want to describe him, uh, he's the one that's speaking. And so this is kind of a, a little bit of a tip-off for you as you read through it. You kind of go, I'm not sure who's talking here and who's uh, doing the talking. This is a tip-off for this. One other thing that you find uh, in this uh, passage and in this book uh, is statements about plants and fruits are, reco- are referred to quite often as well as the word garden. And you say, well, why is that? And most people looking at this say, you know, this is probably the most frequent use of the word garden outside of the, what? Garden of Eden. So there is a reflection back, even in the terms that are used, a reflection back uh, to what you find there uh, in the first husband and wife, they were living in the Garden of Eden. And there was no really sense of shame between the two of them. It was when you had sin enter in that they began to have this element of shame. But it does, uh, as you go through the book of the Song Song of Solomon, you find references to garden and flowers and plants and vineyards and all of this. And it just seemingly is kind of giving us a picturesque, because remember this is poetry, a picturesque way of viewing what this is like, but hinting back to what you have in the original uh, relationship that God had set between men and women. Now, here we go is uh, what we need to describe, because if I was to preach through this tonight, which I'm not going to preach through this, I'm going to give you ways to understand, interpret this, and answer some questions. But 
if you were to go and pull down commentaries on the book of Solomon, or I keep saying the book of Solomon, it's the Song of Songs, but the Song of Solomon, you would find that people would interpret the story that's going on there in four different ways. And so you just have to kind of go, as you read commentaries, go, okay, what are they pointing to as they read through it? Okay, one is that this is an allegory of God's love for the nation of Israel. Okay, that, that all of the statements that are here are talking about God being, and he does describe himself this way with the nation of Israel, as a husband to the nation of Israel, and in some cases, Israel is an unfaithful spouse. You have the whole story of Hosea where that's the illustration, that Israel is an unfaithful spouse. And you say, okay, this would be a nice way to deal with this book and not have to deal with some of the details of it if we just think of this as an allegory. It's a picture of God and the nation of Israel, or uh, as some who don't distinguish between the nation of Israel and the church, they go, this is God's love for the church because the church is the bride and uh, the, um, Christ is uh, the bridegroom. That is one way of taking it, and it is kind of a, a, you know, in ultimate application, you can apply this, and we'll see this at the very end in the New Testament, to Christ and his bride. But that's not what this was originally dealing with, okay? That's not a great way to try and attempt to deal with the details of it. (coughs) Second, this is a book filled with types that can relate to Christ and the church, okay? what some would say is this, it's not just merely an allegory, that these were intentional types. Uh, Type is uh, basically a model that then Christ is the real thing of. And so as you go through, it's not just God, the nation of Israel. What you'll see is that these people are interpreting the whole thing as Christ and his love for the church, and it just goes on and on, and there's these types that supposedly this is you know, something that illustrates Christ, and this is something that illustrates Christ, and this is something that illustrates Christ, and this is something that illustrates Christ, and you're kind of going, you can really stretch that, let alone that that's not the context, because when Song of Solomon was written, the church wasn't around. It still had a thousand years before it even existed. So uh, kind of a dangerous way to deal with this. This one is the one I will tell you, I am beginning to lean more and more to the times I've gone through the Song of Solomon and studied this. That this is a book filled with poems, and I'm right now forgetting the exact number of different poems that they uh, come up with, but there's somewhere between 22 and 30 different poems that they think that they have in this book. People who study Hebrew, look at Hebrew, that type of thing, are going, there seems to be somewhere around that number of distinct poems. And the more I've looked at this, and the more I've looked at the Song of Solomon, I'm beginning to think that that's what this is. Ever hear of a thing called an anthology? Okay, an anthology is a collection of writings of different people, and, and they're not necessarily connected, though they may be about a subject. You know, I, I, at times being a historian, they'll have an anthology of writings about Gettysburg, 
okay? You have that, and you go, well, what do they do? They pick 15 Civil War writers, and they say, okay, write something about the Battle of Gettysburg, and the, the relating factor in all of those stories is that this is the Battle of Gettysburg, but they may be talking about a general, they may talk about a specific battle or a piece of geography or the aftermath, and you kind of go, they're connected by the fact that, okay, you had this battle that took place called Gettysburg. And what you kind of see as you go through this, this, this book is that it's all the poems are dealing with love. But if you try and follow them from the beginning all the way to the end, there's a lot of disconnect points. You're kind of going, this doesn't really follow this, and you kind of go, well, okay, there's another poem there. Okay, this is a collection, I would say, of poems, thus the title. Okay, that, that title could be this, A Song of Songs, and the way Hebrews did, the, did this when you had a repeated word over and over again, they're saying this is the most supreme, you know, it's the better or the supreme of this. And you say, well, is it a song of love? Okay, so it's the, the supreme thing. But it can also mean this, that this is a song of songs. Okay, a whole bunch of songs, a whole bunch of poems. And I tend to look at this book and say, in reading it, and have read it and I, last year and the year before, I suddenly had several commentaries come across my desk in the Song of Solomon. I just said, you know, let me try and work my way through this, because this is not a book I've got a real grasp on as far as the order of it and even trying to preach it. And come to the conclusion that I, I'm thinking that this is more of a collection of poems. And they're connected by the fact of love and marriage, but not exactly do each one of them fit with one another, though there is still that theme going throughout. I will say, we have given you the the arrangement, and this is the fourth way that some people take this, is that this is a literal account of a courtship and marriage, okay, that you actually have all the details, but... um, some say it's Solomon referring to his first wife, or he's giving an account of a shepherd and a Shulamite that he had observed. You know, the observation of life and them getting ready to get married. He's writing statements about what's going on, and he's observed this. But even in reading some of the poetry, it seems like at times Solomon is talking about himself, and another occasion he's talking about a shepherd and a Shulamite woman, and you're kind of going, well, how... How do those connect? It's not one continuous story. There's different, as you said, different poems and different statements about love that seem to be going on throughout this book. And so I, I tend to lean towards this third one now that, you know, more and more times I would have probably said I, I would think that this is the case, but I'm beginning to go here that the more and more I've gone through this, uh, I think that it is a series of poems about love, though it does seem to start with courtship kind of occasions, though there's a couple of details in the courtship section, you're kind of going, mm, sure they're not married at that point? Uh, and uh, you have the, the section that uh, seems to deal with the marriage, and then afterwards some of the questions that go on. So I, I tend to lean to that. So as you read through it, you might want to read it this way, that it is a collection of uh, poems that have been collected, and 
It's a little harder for us to read because we don't quite know where the end and the beginning is because it's not as well defined. The Hebrews might have had a better, easier job of figuring out where some of this poetry started and where it ended. Key verses. I did not put this one down, but you might want to write this one down. I think most people would at least know these terms. If I was to say... um, Song of Solomon, chapter 2 and verse 1 and 2. I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. Okay, so this is why we get some of our analogies uh, to comparing Jesus to these things. Christ, you know, he's the lily of the valley. He's the bright morning star. He's the fairest of 10,000 to my soul. Uh, Jesus, Rose of Sharon. And then verse 2, as the lily among the thorns, so is my love among the daughters. Um, wait, no, that was, I went 4. Uh, verse 4, it says this, he brought me to the banqueting house and his banner over me. Yeah, it's not is love in this passage, it's was love, okay? And so you may have sung this song with children uh, and never really to explain the fact that it was from the Song of Solomon, so uh, probably a good thing. But key verse, I would say, is uh, this one. Song of Solomon, chapter 6 and verse 3. This statement, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine, he feedeth among the lilies. I mean, really, you get this, is that there is a trust between this husband and wife, that there's a security in the relationship. And so that is really kind of the defining statement right there of trust, and that really is what you have going on in marriage. If you don't have trust, it's really not going well. Is there a lack of trust between a husband and wife? It's not going to go well, but in this case, it seems like uh, there is a trust factor for the both of them and security in the relationship that they're not worried about outsiders or other things, that there is a loyalty to one another. Now, we'll go to a section of notes, and it's on the back page, I believe, of the way it's cut uh, for you. Understanding Song of Solomon. Okay, the difficulties to understand in this book are numerous. First, it is often difficult to figure out who is talking. Because as you read through the book, you begin to find out that there's at least a man involved in this and a woman that's involved in this, and then her companions. And so as you're reading through the poems, sometimes she's talking to this group of people, and you have this course of people sing back to her. And I don't know kind of a Bible that you have as far as your, your translation because sometimes they are at least kind enough to you to go through as you're reading through the Song of Solomon and says, you know, this is the woman speaking, this is the man speaking, here's the chorus or group of people. Because you have this kind of almost a play that's going on. 
where this person is, you know, I'm making this statement, I've got this other statement, I'm now going to talk to this crowd of people, and they answer back, and, and uh, this woman calls out to companions of her in the town, and they make statements back to her. And so it's, it's hard to figure it out. I did say that the key way to figure it out sometimes is the, the beloved statement, and my love can tell you if it's the, the man or woman, but uh, that. And sometimes you group of individuals who are talking without any indicator immediately in English who is speaking. Uh, you could understand this because in the Hebrew, at least it's got some of these plural verbs and plural nouns, and you're kind of going, oh, okay, I understand that this is, this is a, a group speaking. But that makes it a little bit difficult. Second thing is this. Second, the language is poetry, and poetry is loaded with meaning or hidden meaning, as I probably should have put there. It's loaded with hidden meaning. Uh, in this book, the language is sometimes intentionally hidden. Okay? You know, some of the things that are described there, you're thankful that it is not literal, that it is hidden by poetic statements and the like. But even for us in our times, there are things that they would have been used to in their culture as far as their poetry, and we don't understand it. Those of you that have taken English classes recently, which most of us are, you know, have not, but you start reading Elizabethan sonnets. And they refer to something, and you're like, I have no idea why they're referring to that. What, what is that? And sometimes even words, you're like, I don't even know how to pronounce that word. What is that word? Um, but back in their culture, they would have understood that poetry immediately. The rhyme scheme and the, the words that are there. So it is sometimes with the illustrations that are here from shepherding and farming and agriculture and ancient society. It's not something that we pick up as quick being more industrialized and uh, less agricultural in our nature. And so times uh, the poetry is uh, hidden, and because we don't understand some of it and others, it's just we're thankful that it is. The song is laid out in three main sections, and this is uh, what I would describe uh, for you if you just kind of follow through the way the poem seemed to be set up. The courtship, the marriage, the realities and ideals of marriage— in the courtship, there's a strong desire to be with and around the one who is loved. Okay, this is typical of a dating relationship. And individuals, uh, and, uh, early on and even later on before marriage, there's just a strong desire to be with that person, find time, and, and you're even willing to, to, to make time in the schedule even though you're tired because you want to be with that individual. That's a lot of what that poetry seems to be describing. At times, she's distressed, the woman is, because she has a dream and can't find her beloved. She's frightened by this, and she's, where is he? And she goes looking all over, and she's asking people, where is he? And it's just a dream, but it's what's representing in her soul that she just doesn't like being separated and away from her beloved. At the wedding, the couple is arrayed in their finest, and the description of them is supreme, the couple enjoys the physical closeness that marriage allows. And uh, so you have, uh, and for us, uh, it wasn't just the, well, I guess men do today get dressed up, you know, they wear a tie, you know, they, they, they sharpen up for a time and a tuxedo, maybe tails, who knows uh, if they're really, really into it. Uh, but most people go, the fancy dress is the woman. You know, the comments are not usually made about the tuxedo that the guy wears. It's usually about the wedding dress. Uh, but on these occasions, uh, both men and women were arrayed in stuff that they didn't normally wear, and it was an impressive uh, event. 
Uh, usually you even had some of these where they were wearing crowns and these type of things to almost make this a regal kind of marriage, even though they may be just shepherds and farmers and the like. However, the honeymoon is over. What is the proper response? You get to five, two through six, the woman fears and dreams that she cannot get to her husband, that somehow there is something in between, and you're really not describe what's in between, but she's trying to get to her husband, and it may seem like he's got distance, or there's work, or he's just not there, and she's upset by this. However, when they are together, they still have the desire and the longings that they had during courtship. Ultimately, in the end, proper love is something that cannot be quenched. You know, you have people that said, uh, well, we just fell out of love. This is why you say love is a, it's a choice. It is not an emotion. It does have emotion playing into it, but love is a choice. And as you look at what happens in the Scripture and God talks about His love, it's nothing to do with emotion. It's choice. And so when you see this at the end, you know, you have this love that cannot be quenched. It's because they have chosen, despite even difficulties in the marriage, that they're going to work things out and and that it is going to be good right up until the end. Now, if you've read this book, there's one thing that comes to mind as you read through it, that is why people say, I'm not sure that this book should have been included in the canon. Not just the subject of it, but it's this. What is the use of a book that does not mention God? Now, there's one other book that doesn't mention God we've already talked about, and which one is that? Esther, okay, and that one actually played a role in it because you see God working behind the scenes just like he does right now, that God is at work behind the scenes. He doesn't have to display himself visually and insert himself obviously. He can do that by moving the pieces uh, of different people like pawns and a chessboard. You say, why is it in this book? Well, it is to point to the institution that God originally founded at creation, In our culture, it must be understood that proper longing is between a man and a woman. In the garden, Adam and Eve found a closeness and were not ashamed to be around one another physically. It was sin. Okay? Why do most of our relationships break up? It's sin. Selfishness. Okay, that's usually the thing that really causes marriage's problem is selfishness on on one or the other uh, in a party. Uh, It was sin that caused the husband and wife to be ashamed, and since then, the ideal of marriage union has been marred. And so what Song of Solomon is doing is giving wisdom, skill in life, okay? This is why it's called it's a wisdom book. He's giving skill in living in the most close of relationship and the bond that's there all the time. It should be there. He's giving skill and working through the details of that as best he can because it's not easy all the time because the person that you married that was perfect at the wedding is not when you get get them home and you have them around for six months a year and you're going they're not as perfect as I thought they were they leave their socks on the floor they put the toilet paper on the wrong way can't they not do things right 
But Song of Solomon is giving wisdom, skill for life, in this case for marriage, and what the ideal should be like. And so he's handing out wisdom, skill in living, when it comes to the marriage relationship. And so that's why the book's there. And out of all the relationships in the Scripture, uh, outside of a relationship with God, this is one of those that's most important. It's the foundation of societies, and and, uh, this is one that the Lord wants exemplified. Now, I will say this. You can apply this in the end, in the understanding of this, that a proper marriage can be related to the relationship that Christ has with this church. That Christ loved his church and loved the church and gave himself for it, which is what the husband should be like in giving himself for the wife because husbands can be very selfish. And at other times, uh, you have the, the wife who is one who uh, does not really like their husband and doesn't like to be around them. And there has to be a willingness to, well, submit and be a part of the relationship. There is a passion and a selfless love that will not wane, and we're thankful for the fact that Christ and his love is never quenched. That for eternity, we're uh, basking in his love. I mean, think about this. We're going to get into Romans chapter 8 on Sunday morning. Who can separate us from the love of God? The love of God in Christ Jesus, and we're thankful for uh, that. Uh, he does not separate his love, and so we ought to be as people in the image of God, created in his image, reflect the love that God has for us as, well, unworthy individuals, and he has love for us, it's not quenched. Okay, well, let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we thank you that you've given us a book like this, not an easy book to deal with, but in reading it, uh, you find uh, there that a lo- love is something that should be exemplifying those for us that are in relationship with one that is our spouse, that we would reflect an unquenchable love, and that even some difficulties uh, at times because of our personality and events and those type of things should not be uh, the things that separate us, but uh, that we should uh, cling to one another and that we should be close, uh, both emotionally and physically, and all those aspects of marriage, and that ought to be a regular part of life. Lord, may we see in this book the unquenchable love that is reflected in your love for us, that uh, you are a God that uh, will never, once we're in your family, allow us to be separated away because of your great love for us in Christ Jesus. So we're thankful for this book. May we understand your word uh, as we go further along and and to have other books that are uh, hard to sometimes interpret, but may we understand the message of this, that uh, married love is important to you and uh, that uh, we would treat it with respect. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.